from Madison, Wisconsin in the United States of Global Hegemony. It's Didactic Syncast with your host Eric P. Hello Earthlings and welcome to the Didactic Syncast, your overview of everything important on the planet Earth. Uh, I'm Eric S. Piotrowski, a writer and educator in Wisconsin, USA. I am known as Duke Scath in the world of video games and Twitter, a.k.a. Scartol in the world of Wikipedia and Reddit. Today is uh, Sunday, May 14th, 2017. On this program, I bring you a range of news stories, historical and literary perspectives, and my opinions on topics like current events, war, human rights, economics, education, hip-hop, music, and killer robots. So buckle up and let's get started. A little bit better than dope is A brand new kid to show biz With knowledge I persevere But find out do me a favor, favor. Let me in here And we can find a rhyme to fill in space And drop the bass with a taste of it's, I'm, I'm not dead I'm not I haven't disappeared off the face of the earth Those of you waiting for a new show Thank you for your patience And everybody who's been in touch Asking for a new program I appreciate it Once again I've been saving up news stories But uh, you know, when the weekend hits, I'm just like, I, I can't do it during the week. I'm too exhausted. And then when the weekend hits, Saturday, I'm like, Ugh, I need a day to recover. And then Sunday, it's like, blah, I got a veteran gamer show and I got papers to grade and it all just becomes blah. So anyway, recently I did an interview with my friend Ben. And so that's this program. You're going to get to hear Ben Terrell. He's totally awesome. And I hope you love him the way I love him because he and I have a special bond. And also, good news, I got accepted into the um, English Journal. Yay! And that's a pretty prestigious publication. It is the official publication of the National Council of Teachers of English. And it's, uh, yeah, it's the, you know, sort of a scholarly journal among English teachers at the secondary level. So I'm pretty happy with it. They put out a call for submissions about how teachers deal with death and grief and loss in the classroom. And I wrote up a thing and they were like, yes, let's have this, please. Now make these changes. And so I've been making changes and I'm ready to send it in. So yeah, I'll be talking more about that. If you want to read the article, it'll be available. Uh, you, you, I mean, I'll make copies for people who really want it, but um, anyway, yeah. So that's exciting. Those of you who are English teachers, watch. If you get the English Journal, watch out for an upcoming issue with me in it. And if you don't subscribe already, if you're not an NCTE member, then uh, holler at someone you know who gets the English Journal because uh, they're always around. You just got to find somebody who's already an NCTE member. Anyway, that is the, yeah, that's all I got to say for now. I will be back sooner or later. There's only like four or five more weeks of school left. So once summer arrives, I will surely be doing shows more regular-like. And enjoy the interview. All right, folks. uh, Welcome to the awesome interview portion of today's show. Ben Terrell is a San Francisco-based writer whose work has appeared in the San Francisco Chronicle, the San Francisco Bayview newspaper, In These Times, Counterpunch, Noir City, and many other outlets. He is also an editor and a publisher of the independent zine Namaste Motherfucker, a name that is too vulgar for this program, so apologies for the bleeping. Ben is also a lifelong activist and rabble-rouser, and I am honored to call him my friend. Uh, I first 
first met Ben in the mid-1990s when we both worked to end U.S. support for Indonesian genocide in East Timor. Uh, since then, we've kept loosely in touch, but this is our first real conversation in about 15 years, if memory serves. So welcome, Ben, to the didactic syncast, Ben Terrell. Thank you very much. Um, sorry it's been 15 years. I meant to call. I, something came up, I guess. Well, the important thing is that I sent you some money recently, and you sent me some awesome zines. So that's, I think, the best basis for keeping in touch in some way. Yeah, it's a good one. Thank you for uh, thank you for the compliment. Absolutely. Let's start with talking about that. So this you, you've been putting the zine out, Namaste, motherfucker, for how long? Um, about, God, four or five years. I, tr- I tried to make it... Um, for a while I was deluding myself into thinking I could do it every six months, but it's usually nine months to a year. And, uh, initially it took a while because, um, I was having a friend lay it out on a volunteer basis because I'm terrible at layout. And, um, subsequently I got somebody really good to do it who I pay some shekels to, but, so now I have no excuse, but I, I still don't put it out as often as I'd like. And what was the impetus when you did the first issue? Like, what made you say, I need to make a print publication in 2013? Well, I was standing in a supermarket checkout line, and I was looking at National Enquirer. And as we do. National, what was it, The Star, whatever all, uh, you know, the names of the other tabloids that happened to be there at the time, and I thought, these publications need competition. I can do it. But are you going to get scoops? That turned Trump out I was wrong about to. the competition part. It was right <laughs> that uh, I could do it. And also, I you know also I had been writing for a while, and I had freelance uh, pieces that appeared in various places, and uh, nobody I knew really bothered to read them. So I thought if I did a compilation and put them together and wrote some other stuff and tried to make people laugh and maybe I could force them to finally read these things. That's kind of what and motivated me to put out that book of stories a couple of years ago. It was like, you know what? I've got all this stuff put together. I'll put it into one place. And if it's in one place, then it's more likely I can push it into people's hands. Yeah, bingo. Cool. Um, so I've been doing a number of these interviews uh, with people that I, I went to school with or, you know, knew back in the day and uh, mostly just want to expose people to awesome uh, folks that I know. And these interviews often go sort of bouncing back and forth because we live in such a crazy time. It's impossible not to talk about it. But then I also want to know information about sort of where people come from. And I want to, you know, share with folks who might be listening one thing that's very important to me is I remember I heard I heard an interview with Chomsky one time. I think it was probably David Barsamian, and he was talking about how Norm uh, Norm Chomsky. Yeah, Norm. Oh, Chomsky. Noam Chomsky. Good. Well, Sorry. Norm's brother, Noam. Yeah. So he was talking about you know a lot of people think of activism as something that's either all or nothing. You have to devote your entire life to it, or you might as well just not bother being involved in any way. And I want to you know show the various different ways in which people are involved in fighting the man and trying to you know make the world suck a little bit less. So I'm I'm just, I'm curious to get all that stuff, but I want to start with this James Comey business. For those who don't know, James Comey, the head of the FBI, was fired yesterday by Donald Trump because apparently he was screaming at the TV. Trump was every time they talked about Russia, 
and they were and he was like Comey's doing a bad job so your reaction to this late breaking news Ben Terrell um well it's pretty jaw dropping i was reading the new york times today and they the on the editorial page um they wrote that the chances that uh trump filed, fired comey because of the release of information um making hillary clinton look bad during at the end of the um election cycle in 2016 is impossible <laughs> they didn't say it's unlikely they said it's impossible and then i don't know one of I the, a fair fight. the warner senator warner said it doesn't pass any conceivable smell test uh, the idea that trump who was um playing up these uh the information in these leaks about the emails um that Hillary Clinton and her people were sending back and forth and the lack of security when and and that he was praising the release of these and saying this is so great and now all of a sudden that's the reason he fired, fired Comey when Comey was doing in in the midst of this investigation of uh the Trump campaign's connections to the Russian oligarchy it's just you know, it's just unbelievable. It's, there's no way anybody in their right mind could believe that. Yeah, I wonder what you think of the the notion that, you know, Trump is shameless. And I've heard some people say that, you know, even even operating on the plane of, you know, calling out his hypocrisy or discussing facts as they are is just like a waste of time and that it's just got to be about power plays now and, and like... I don't know, trying to deconstruct the absurdities of his policy statements or his, you know, proclamations are just a waste of time. Yeah, um, I think there's definitely something to that. Uh, Noam Chomsky in a recent interview on Democracy Now! was saying that he thinks, he said he he didn't know um, for sure, but he felt very strongly that the kind of outrageous lies and um, distortions and offensive remarks and all the ridiculous tweets that he sends out are kind of a distraction and they're kind of provocations to get people going crazy and trying to counter him. And meanwhile, his cabinet and the people he's appointed to these various agencies and Paul Ryan uh, and the Republican Congress are systematically dismantling um, every positive, everything that's been put into place by the government in the last 50 years under due to grassroots pressure that's remotely good for poor or working people. So, yeah, I think even... Um, I forget where I was reading it recently, but um, someone was complaining about how the New York Times does this a lot. They respond to the outrageousness of what is what comes out of the White House in terms of what they say, but it's true. I read the New York Times Monday through Friday, and there's not enough about the specifics of the attacks on social programs right. and, you know, positive initiatives uh, like the 
NEA and the EPA. I mean, there's there's some coverage, but I think it could be stronger. Right. I, I mean, and that puts me in a weird position because my whole thing has always been, look, no matter what you're spouting in terms of nonsense or things I disagree vehemently with, I'm going to try to talk to you and explain, like, here's why I think you're wrong and here's where I'm coming from and let's see if we can find some common ground and I can explain to you why your ideology is flawed and I think you're being blinded by your fixation on your ideology and yada, yada, yada. But... Then it's like, you know, Utah Phillips once said, some people, it's like talking to a refrigerator, and there's no point. Yeah, I think that's definitely true. I mean, speaking truth to power with the Trump administration, I think, is a total waste of time. And, you know, it's a longer conversation as to when that's useful. But I think with the, and then with the hardcore racist uh, ultra-right and the oligarchs, you know, it's they're just not going to be persuaded. So I think it's people who got conned into voting for Trump and fell for it and now are feeling the sting of what his policies are really going to be like are the people that it's worth trying to persuade. Yeah. And then the other thing, I mean, if, if you're thinking about how to mobilize, I mean, not, I'm not a huge fan of the Democrats, but they're what we have now. Right. And, so, you know, the Sanders wing of the Democratic Party is capable of doing a lot of good things. And so if we're thinking about how to block this, um, you know, kind of proto-fascist administration in the and turn things around in the 2018 elections, I think... A lot of it has to be mobilizing the base, too, not just persuading and, you know, bending over backwards to say, I feel your pain, you know. People in the middle, hey. Even though you're racist, I think that's, (laughs) you know, you have a legitimate right to be crazy or something. (laughs) I think, you know, mobilizing people who don't vote and getting people to really commit to, even if it involves putting on a a clothespin on your nose when you go to the polls to vote for a Democrat, even if they're not on the Sanders or, you know, progressive caucus end of the spectrum, which ideally, I mean, for me, the ideal thing would be to support those people who are working with Sanders to try to pull the Democrats to the left. But there are, I think one of the positive things right now, one of the most, hopeful things right now is these groups that are um, focused on electoral politics, but are also, you know, getting people to come out to town meetings. Right. And there are a lot of people who aren't diehard die lefties, but there are people who think and realize how horrible this current administration is. And yeah. um, they're coming out, like I said, to town hall meetings. And then they are also, organizations like Swing Left, which are organizing in swing states and Mm -hmm. on districts where um, the races are hotly contested. So there's like Swing Left, and then I've been to some meetings of this group, Indivisible, which has really big chapters in San Francisco, and they're all over the place. And they're great, too. I mean, they one of one of my complaints over the years i mean i've been going to demonstrations and protest marches for years but 
I remember especially during the Iraq War and the lead up to the Iraq, the Iraq War, the one of 2003, it was really hard to get people to actually make a phone call. So there would be hundreds of thousands of people marching, but Pelosi wouldn't, our local rep, wouldn't be getting that much pressure in terms of phone calls or letters or organized visits to her office. And that's completely turned around, thanks Mm -hmm. partly to, you know, groups like Indivisible people are. It's so discouraging that Keith Ellison couldn't get into the leadership position of the DNC. It's so, you know, the, 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 establishment of the party is, uh, you know, from my cold, dead hands, are we going to let anybody that, you know, is even remotely left of center going to get any. Yeah. I think it's a, um, it's a big, well, would Rumsfeld say there's no knowns and unknown, (laughs) unknowns and unknown knowns that are unknown, but, um, it's, yeah, it's a 10,000, $2 million question, whether Ellison, as the deputy to the guy who right. got in. Who's He's assistant to the manager, yeah. Yeah, is really going to have any ability to sway things in a more progressive do- direction or whether he's just window dressing. Yeah, sure. Yeah, that was really uh, that was really uh, disappointing when he didn't get that. But I, I should say that, you know, for listeners, I don't know, in a way, like when Trump got elected, I remember, you know, the next day I had students who came to my room and were just like, Mr. P, what the hell? What do we do? <laughs> and I started saying, look, in a way, this kind of reminds me of, you know, the middle of the Timor fight because people felt like it was never going to change and everything was garbage and it was and it is. But then you have to say, okay, how do we organize? How do we, you know, keep our spirits going? How do we sustain each other? How do we analyze things correctly? How do we propagandize? And we just, you just work on it, you know? So I feel like that experience of working on the East Timor issue has trained in me and, you know, injected into me a sense of lifelong resistance to injustice that, I don't know, I feel like it can weather any presidency at this point. Yeah, well, there's also this thing of, of learning from people outside the U.S. I mean, within the U.S., I was just thinking about under McCarthyism in the 50s, the crackdown on anything left where all these unions were broken, you know, during the height of the Cold War, the height of anti-communism, and people got through that. But then also in other countries, like Russia is one example. There's a woman who writes for the New York Review of Books who wrote something I thought was really powerful online about, I think it was called How to survive autocracy Mm. um and back in january i think maybe december and her name is masha gesson g-e-s-s-e-n and she had a lot of really insightful things to say based on her experience as a as a lesbian left winger under putin Mm. you know naturally she went through a lot of scary stuff so um yeah there there's things that other people have been through and i mean i hope it doesn't get to the point that um sky timothy snyder who's a historian of the holocaust wrote this book that just came out called on tyranny where he talked about what the people like in the warsaw ghetto had to do with stuff i mean 
Um, yeah, I'm always but, telling my students to read the book Treblinka because I think the uprising that took place there is a powerful lesson to all of us in terms of, you know, the, that spirit of resistance is never extinguished and we have to recognize it. And I think it's important for those of us who are relatively privileged members of society to remember that, okay, you know, we can have spirit of resistance and we can feel like, okay, we'll make it through this. But then it's also important to remember that, uh, you know, there are Muslim Americans, there are undocumented immigrants who are feeling the very real brunt of the policies and yeah. the national yeah. climate every day. So I interviewed a friend of mine, uh, Sophia, from New College, and, you know, she is feeling like it's not safe for her kids. And as soon as I start talking about that, I feel like people get a sense of like, ooh, that's terrible. And they, they you know, when I talk about Trump sucks and his policies, this and that, they, they're like, whatever. Is presidents come and go. And I'm like, once I start talking about the actual way it affects people, I think that's often yeah. an awakening for people. Yeah, I think there are a lot of white middle class people who think, well, it's not going to affect me. I mean, I hope there are not millions, but that's a fear of mine. I have a colleague I teach and another teacher goes off on Trump to his students a lot, but he said to me, it's not going to affect me. Mm-hmm. And I said, no, because you're a straight white middle class guy. Right. But what if you're facing deportation? He was saying this in 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 a context where he was kind of saying, "Yeah, I'm not worried about it that much." Right, right. So, and there's yeah, a balancing act there. I think you know, anytime we face terrible situations, we don't want to overwhelm ourselves with worry, but we don't want to understate the severity of the situation. I mean, I remember yeah. wrestling with that yeah. when East Timor was being occupied, and. Um, yeah. So anyway, um, so if if you don't mind, I want to sort of rewind a little bit. Um, take us back to young Ben. Uh, did you grow up in the San Francisco area? Yeah, it was the uh, middle of the Civil War. No, um, <laughs> it was the you know the one in. The I'd go area. shovel some coal out to the. <laughs> the yeah, bar. I was always anti-slavery. And <laughs> I knew William Lloyd Garrison. He and I used to hang out. <laughs> but uh, no, I. Um, um, grew up in New England actually, and I moved to San Francisco in in um, 1992. God, so I've been out here for 25 years, and I don't want to leave. But this is it's the worst housing crisis in the U.S. So yeah. we're all we're all holding our breaths and living in fear. Even people with rent control. Nice. So uh, yeah, but when does a housing bubble ever cause any problems in the United States? I mean. It's the type of thing yeah, that's true. the market tends that's true. to regulate itself, don't you think? Yeah, I mean, if more luxury housing gets built eventually in a thousand years or something, <laughs> yeah, exactly. it'll be okay for other people too, no I guess. So did you get involved? Were you involved in politics in high school? Um, well, I was kind of a red diaper baby. I mean, my both my parents were kind of uh, reformed communists who became... Democrats. So in the um, earlier in their lives, they were in the CP and the Communist Party. So, you know, they were always political. So I learned a lot from them. And then, you know, the Vietnam War was still at its and I mean, at, it was still going on. It was towards the end of the Vietnam War when I was growing up. So I knew about that, and everybody in my family was going to demonstrations and stuff. So then in college, I went to UMass Amherst, and I studied U.S. history. So, you know, I started reading about the CIA and reading Chomsky and all the stuff we've read and 
two people are involved in the East Timor Action Network. And that's how you get involved in ETAN then through reading about? Yeah, well, it was through the Chomsky documentary, Manufacturing Consent. I saw it and I walked out of the theater and it was actually at the intermission. And the timing was really good because the most horrific part of the movie was stuff about the Dilly Massacre. And then they have an intermission and you come out yeah. in the lobby and you're all stunned and disoriented and yeah. thinking, oh, my God. And, and there are these ETAN people standing there going, <laughs> sign up. Use your so anger. Uh, and it's amazing. Yeah, right before that intermission, I know that there's a quote from Chomsky where he talks about, you know, the people in the third world often exist within a margin of survival and how big yeah. that margin is is up to us. And I remember when yeah, I watched exactly. that, I was yeah. like, oh, man, I better do more work, you know. I'm like, yeah, yeah, we can, yeah, we yeah, can have yeah, an impact. Yeah. So, uh, yeah, so you got involved, and then, so were you involved then in New England, or was that after you'd gone to San Francisco? Uh, no, that was out here, because that, okay. that was like hmm, mid-90s. Okay. So I, I was already out here. Yeah. Um, and yeah, I, I mean, I've done, I haven't, I've been kind of an inactivist, uh, and then an activist back and forth over the last 10 years, you know. Sure. Sure. But I always sort of have, kept involved at the level of kind of paying attention to what's going on and being in touch with, even when I'm not doing a lot of stuff, being, having friends who are doing more and stuff like that. Yeah, yeah, totally. And so do you remember who was, who was all organizing there in San Francisco before you got involved? Uh, Joe was in LA, right? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, there were, there was a small, it was a small group of people. I had a friend, Louis Chemnitzer, he taught at, date who was kind of a mentor to me he was kind of an incredible guy and he got me to regularly volunteer at the soup kitchen where i still go once a week used to be twice a week but i had to break down and get more um employment um gainful employment but he he so he was a old teacher and uh and had been an anarchist activist for decades and still was at that point he died but so he was the kind of formative influence and then when i met the national people um in etan like charlie and john and you and diane and everybody joe nevins um that was the big thing that kind of solidified that commitment and then i was very fortunate to um be a nation intern in 1996 and my i was working as an intern for Alan Nairn, oh, wow. who, you know, was in the Dilly, survived the Dilly Massacre with Amy yeah, yeah. Goodman and was still is this great journalist who, um, whose specialty is risking his life taking up information on CIA and other U.S. intelligence support for death squads all over the world. Over and over and over. Like, he just broke a story on The Intercept about... The U.S. Yeah, mil- the, US the CIA, I guess, is working with ISIS-connected groups in Indonesia, and like yeah, it's it a uh, Trump. Yeah, they're Trump people in Indonesia. I mean, he has these tentacles building these awful structures all over the world, and one of the places in, is Indonesia where there are these Trump towers. Maybe it's singular. I don't know, mm-hmm. but um, this monstrous development and so he's doing with pe- people with business on the ground 
who are, you know, typical sleazy Trump associates. And it turns out, as Alan has documented, that one or more of them are connected to these these uh, ultra-militant kind of death squad operations that are actually have ISIS ties. Yeah. So. And the dude who translated in into Bahasa Indonesia got arrested. And, like, Alan Nairn's like, if you're going to arrest him, you should arrest me too. Alan Nairn yeah. is one of these people. And I, when I met him, I couldn't believe I was meeting someone. It's like the same with Amy Goodman, you know? It's like you can't believe there are people that courageous in the world. And then it's like, man, I should step my game up. I remember in 99 – I was in uh, Watsonville uh, doing the U.S. side of the Observer mission, right? And, Mm -hmm. like, most of the uh, IFET people had been pulled out. So for the sorry, real quick for our listeners who may not know, I I'm not we're not gonna go into the whole thing about East Timor. There was a vote in 1999. Uh, Did you go there in 99? Yeah, I was there for just a few weeks in yeah. 99. So there was this huge operation to send people over to East Timor to serve as an election observers. Um, a number, like we had 100 people from the U.S. and 100 people from around the world and other countries. And Diane went and Ben went and a lot of other people went. I didn't go for various reasons. We won't get into it. I'm basically chicken shit. But the, uh, I was in Watsonville, California helping to coordinate stuff in the U.S. And most of the IFED people have been withdrawn. This is probably like three days after the results were announced and there was a huge wave of massacres. It was all horrible bloodshed. I could, when I called over to the office the night before y'all, uh, y'all got pulled out, I could hear the gunshots in the background and the woman was you know crying and it was just horrifying. Anyway, Alan Nairn, of course, stuck around along with... Yeah, for a week. Yeah, yeah. Along with... <laughs> Unbelievable. Um, the woman with the eye patch. I can never remember her name. She died in Syria. Um... Anyway, she's an amazing journalist as well. There were a few UN people who refused to leave the UN compound because they knew everybody would die if they left, so they stayed. So anyway, Alan Nairn sends me the email that says, hey, I'm doing a press conference in Dili. There's no journalists in the whole country. And, and, but he was doing a press conference. And so he said, contact the media. So I was like calling BBC and you know CNN and all the rest of them. And I, I remember calling BBC and I'm being like, hey – Alan Nairn's doing a press conference, and the guy's like, oh, yeah, Darwin or Sydney. And I was like, no, no, he's in Dilly. And the guy, there was silence. I was like, hello? And the guy goes, that guy's insane. (laughs) I "I don't know what to tell you, dude. I don't think you're wrong. Yeah, he's going around in this devastated war zone where these Indonesian military and police and death squads are just running rampant. And he stayed awake for days and days going from building to building. And he actually disguised himself as a militia person. Wow, I didn't know that. And somehow didn't get killed. Wow. Yeah. That's insane. Marie Colvin, by the way, is the name of the other journalist who stuck around in East Timor. Uh, She was an amazing person as well. So, Um, Yeah, so... East Timor obviously has been an important factor in your life. Are there other issues that are sort of front and center in your mind when considering the uh, craziness going on around us now? Well, oddly enough, since I was a young kid, partly because of my family and partly because of just basic human decency, I've been just kind of anti-war and so, folk, you know, you kind of have your hands full if you feel passionately about that living in this country since, <laughs> you know, the business of the United States is largely focused on maintaining our war machine, which is the one thing that 
um, there's kind of bipartisan support in Congress on just maintaining the military budget. And so, yeah, when I get more involved when we're, we're about to wage a big war, but it's kind of ongoing all over the world with now with drone and anti-ISIS um, offensives where, you know, untold numbers of civilian casualties are racked up. And um, I've been getting a little more involved on um, anti-gentrification stuff in uh, San Francisco, partly just out of uh, survival instincts. (laughs) So, okay, so I probably have some listeners who aren't too familiar with that term. Let's break it down a little bit. What is gentrification? Um, well, you know, I think it's it's more about displacement, but gentrification, um, is a complicated process, but, you know, to simplify, it's when people with more money come into a neighborhood and because they can pay more rent, uh, the prices for housing go up. And in San Francisco, this tech boom, it just seems to want to go on forever. And there's so much Homeland Security money in Silicon Valley. I think that's one of the reasons that it's um, just keeps growing and growing and growing. Mm-hmm. And, you know, Facebook and Google aren't going anywhere. Right. Um, and Twitter, oddly enough. <laughs> so you know, the, the city planning is focused, um, thanks to our corporate developer-friendly mayor and the people around him is focused on bringing, right now, they're talking about like 10,000 more people every year. And San Francisco is kind of, uh, you know, there's limited space to grow. And um, so there's just luxury condos going up all over the place. And now Mm -hmm. the historic Latino neighborhood, the mission is just being decimated. So... um, yeah, it's a tough situation. It, I guess you might want to call it displacement and uh, more than gentrification at this point because it's about people being evicted right. through various means who have been in places for 20 years. There was recently this uh, woman who was 100 years old and she was involved in a court battle and the owner, person who took control of her building, actually, instead of waiting a year, because they're so greedy, they want to sell at the height of the market, which is right now, he evicted this woman, and she died like a month later. Oh, and wow. she couldn't even get all her stuff out of the place. Mm-hmm. So she was 100, and she got evicted. Yeah. But there are lots of people. They they actually been targeting elderly because they're easier to get out of building it's kind of jaw dropping it's yeah. you, you know it's that? like it's just rapacious unrestrained capitalism and it's yeah. worse did you see the uh, david simon show show me a hero it was on hbo it was about oh, housing no. integration i love him yeah housing integration in the 1980s and um civil rights violations tore apart yonkers new york the paralyzing the oh and yonkers yeah i yeah. heard i read about it but i didn't see that it was really good it was typical david simon like it wasn't you know it's not fireworks it's not like people waging f- street fights or you know like 
I want him fired, that whole thing. It's just like, here's the grind people go through when they try uh-huh. to do something that will benefit some folks that the society doesn't really care about and just like how yeah. the system just wears them down and wears them down. And um, it's just, you know, he, he's just such a good storyteller. So, and it's about, yeah. And he's got that background stuff. as a real uh, shoe leather reporter who's oh, yeah. focused on the minutia and the nuts and bolts of how everything works, yeah. which is, you know, why the wire and Treme were so good. I think. Sure. Sure. Totally. Um, so another interest I know that you have is noir, both film noir and noir fiction. And, uh, yeah, tell us a little bit about that. Why is that uh, so central in your uh, fictional life? I, well, I really liked it. I always liked those movies growing up old. You know, I had a, postcard, a poster, rather, of Humphrey Bogart on my wall when I was in eighth grade or something. As most and, eighth graders do, you know, it's, it's either Beyonce yeah. or Humphrey Bogart. So I used to go into school chain smoking with a fedora <laughs> on, and I carried a gun. No, I didn't do that. But um, I thought about it. I never did it. Trying to take it too far. But um, I uh, just got more and more into those films, and um, around 2000, uh, this great kind of local San Francisco empresario and writer who's written fiction and histories of film noir. He started a annual film noir film festival, which runs for 10 days every January at the Castro theater. So I got more and more immersed in that stuff. And actually my dad wrote, um, crime fiction. He wrote a detective series when I was growing up and, then the 50s, he wrote kind of different. I like the stuff in the 50s better. He wrote uh, this series in the 60s and 70s that he inherited from somebody else, Mike Shane Mysteries. But then in the 50s, he wrote a lot of different, as they say, standalone novels. Mm-hmm. And then a few uh, short lived detective series books. So, you know, I kind of had that. In my life, it was kind of in the background growing up. Mm-hmm. So, um, you ever read John Shirley's book, New Noir? It's a series of noir stories. That's like uh, my only real no. connection with the genre, I must say. Does he write science fiction? He does. He, apparently, he wrote The Crow. I just learned that he wrote the the film The Crow. And oh, yeah. He wrote a tie-in I novel I... for Bioshock Rapture. Go figure. Um, I think yeah, I think he was a contemporary William Gibson's, right? Yeah, Wasn't yeah, he one of those? So. Sure. Is that right? Uh, apparently, yeah. According to the Wikipedia article, he probably provided yeah. the inspiration for William Gibson's meat puppets in Neuromancer. So. Yeah, I think I yeah I've read one of his novels, but it yeah. was a few years ago. Yeah. Um, it yeah, it was pretty interesting. I haven't read it. I just I read that one. Huh, I just yeah, I like he... I wind up reading a lot of stuff from. I mean, I read a lot of political stuff, and then I try to read kind of um, classic literature that's maybe more highbrow, whatever that means. Sure. Um, but then I, I for crime fiction, I wound up I wind up reading a lot of stuff from the forties and fifties and sixties. Yeah. All right, so top five noir novels of all time. Go ahead. Oh my god! Um, I don't know. This is just personal taste. Of I, you know, I, 
I'm not an expert. I mean, there are tons of people who read this stuff all the time. I'm yeah. never going to own a mystery so book Ben's, store right. so Ben's because I read five. too slowly and I like <laughs> reading a lot of other stuff. But that yeah. said, I really like um, Kenneth Fearing's The Big Clock. He was a poet. I wrote about him in an article that wound up in one of my an issue of my zine, and that The Big Clock is amazing. Dashiell Hammett, probably uh, uh, Maltese Falcon and Glass Key. Uh, Raymond Chandler, geez, I don't know which one. At least one Raymond Chandler, and I'm trying to... Th- I really like In a Lonely Place by Dorothy B. Hughes. That's okay. incredible. So that's, what'd you say, five? Yeah, sure. Let's call it five. Bingo. You got that, people? Go look, read those books now. And then how about like three noir movies? Oh, come on. I could go on forever. Uh, <laughs> I know. I gotta, that's why I got to cut you off. We got to keep I'd things bore moving. you to tears. Yeah, he'd <laughs> be cutting me off in, in a moment, matter of minutes. Actually, he'll yeah. talk too quickly. Um, no, I okay, three off the top of my head. There's one called Sweet Smell of Success. This just uh, that was Michael J. Fox, incredible. wasn't it? In the 1980s, and he was on the champagne bottle. Oh no, that was Secret of My uh, Success. No, it's a little earlier than that. <laughs> Burt Burt Lancaster and Tony Curtis, great screenplay, directed by Alexander McKendrick, isn't that his name? He's Terry Gilliam's favorite director. Oh, okay. So that tells you something. And yeah. then um, Out of the Past with Robert Mitchum is really great, and. Jesus, only one more? Okay, <laughs> which one? Uh, Maltese Falcon or Asphalt Jungle? So there you go, people. Add them to your Netflix cues. You're probably not on Netflix, so you're going to have to get them some other way. Now is that, I mean, have you explored the Netflix queue in terms of noir? Or is it yeah, there's nothing one? there. Nothing I mean, there. I think Netflix is good for TV shows, yeah. but I mean, for, for interesting movies... Yeah. I think you can find things, but I. Uh, it's so hidden. It just seems like there's way too much garbage for yeah, me to wade yeah, through. Yeah. There's one that I know about. I don't watch a lot of stuff streaming because yeah. my library queue is too large. But there's um, and I can still go out to movie theaters around here. But the there's one called Filmstruck that has a lot of Turner Classic movies, um, right. films, and they they also have a lot of uh, noir and stuff from the Criterion Collection, which okay. gets into, you know, these great Japanese movies like Kurosawa and yeah. Ozu and yeah, they have those on Hulu as well. Them. But Hulu is mostly just yeah TV shows, and um, most of their movies are even worse than Netflix. So I don't recommend. Yeah, the only thing that. I really like from Netflix is uh, Alfred Hitchcock presents his yeah, whole sure. TV show. Oh yeah, yeah. You know, The Clash used to be called The Only Band That Matters. I think Alfred Hitchcock Presents is the only TV show that matters. Heresy! How could you say that when The Simpsons still exists? Well, just to get you upset. Yeah, I know. You're good at that. Um, Yeah, so what would you say has been um, something you think people are kind of missing or uh, not paying attention to? In 2017, um, how dangerous Trump is. You really think people don't realize that? 
Yeah, I think he's a lot more dangerous than most people realize, actually. I mean, yeah, there are probably a lot of people that you and I know but I, I'm who are terrified and stuff. But I think, you know, I just get the sense that even out here in San Francisco, know, leading up to the 2003 Iraq War, there was a really palpable sense that people were really on edge and really upset about it. And... Uh, I mean, I could be wrong because there are big demonstrations everywhere and, and everything. But I think there there are too many people who aren't aware of how dangerous he is. And do you think that's like, you know, political fatigue, or do you think it's people are kind of in a bubble and they don't see it affecting their friends and family? Yeah, I think I think the second, um, and I think you know, complacency is is as American as apple pie and. Um, there's this phenomena where it's like Brave New World, where what's it called? Soma, you know, the drug that people go to that keeps them kind of narcoticized and um, oblivious to what's going on outside their little bubble. And I, I, you know, I'll go on till the cows come come home about this stuff, but I think the way people are glued to their phones and glued to their computers uh, really is kind of insidious and, um, I don't know, keeps people from paying attention. I, You know, it's a mixed bag when you talk about social media and right. the Internet in general because there's a lot of useful information and there's right. um, a, a lot of awareness of things that are important. But then there's also the other stuff, I think, where people are just, like, streaming garbage all the time. Mm-hmm. I mean, I fight this with, you know, I teach ESL, and mm-hmm. my students are in their 20s. And, you know, I say, you can live with your phone off for another hour. Right. You're going to survive. Yeah. But they so, won't. Like I they, like I, I, Yeah, it becomes a choice of, like, for a lot of students, it's like either – just use sort of logic and humor or you kick them out of the room. Like there's no yeah. third option. And yeah. a lot of times logic and humor, I mean, if, you know, if you're going to, especially being as I am something of an anarchist in the classroom, I, I'm, I don't want to kick the kid out. So then it becomes, I feel like I'm either a sucker or a monster. And, and it's, it's, yeah, this I, constant I don't war. feel like a monster, but I, I sometimes do feel like a sucker, but I also feel it's different for me because I teach mostly 20-somethings. Yeah. And if they don't want to learn, I just feel like they're not going to pass the exam and right. that's on them. Right, sure. So, yeah, I mean, that's it's a big question for teachers now. I think everybody has to deal with this. Yeah, teaches. there's a school, actually, there's a series of them in, in Madison here who they've they've turned off. They've seen, basically, they're turning off Wi-Fi or I guess maybe they're blocking Facebook and that oh, yeah, on brilliant. in the can in the school, and I don't. I to be honest, I don't think that's going to do much because most of my students, I think, I don't know for sure, but I think a lot of them just use their cell data. Like it's not about the Wi-Fi. And oh, because they're texting. All yeah, the time. texting and Snapchat and Instagram and all the rest of it. So I just don't think the Wi-Fi huh. is a bit. You know, it, I I I, th- I see it as trying to use technology as the solution to the problem, but I don't think that can be. I think it's. You know, in the same way that the internet hasn't saved us from tyranny, it's got to be consciousness raising, right? Yeah, yeah. So, 
it's just there's it's a real good book about online living called I mean there's there've been a ton of books in the last few years but this one called Terms of Service mm-hmm. I think is the title by um his last name is Silverman Jacob Silverman he's a great journalist he writes for the Baffler sometimes he writes for a lot of different outlets but that's that's really good. I've been meaning to go back and read through it again. Did you ever read Technopoly by uh, Neil Postman? Yeah. Oh, yeah, yeah. yeah Neil classic. Postman's brilliant. Yeah, I remember reading that and and sort of have you know because his his whole thing for those who don't know is that technology is a tool and some people are wetting their pants about how amazing it is. And I remember hearing Timothy Leary talk about someday you'll be able to wear your computer and he thought it was going to be the most important <laughs> step in the evolution of humanity ever. And Neil Postman was like, look, people this technophilia has its limits and yes, there will be good things that it will bring us, but we can't act as though it's going to save us from anything. And I think no, it's no. so hard to make that point. Cause there are people I think who have the attitude of like, Oh, it's Satan. It's causing everything that's wrong. And then there's people who are like, it's the most wonderful thing ever. And we should have it yeah. everywhere. Yeah. It's yeah. like truth is in the middle, dude. Yeah, I agree. So, I mean, I didn't even have a cell phone until like about, Eight months ago, I guess now, and like, oh right, yeah, I, mean, I was great. a total luddite, <laughs> and I was like, I don't need it, and I, I still to this day mostly don't. Um, yeah. I got one because I, you know, a, a deer hit my car, and I was just, you know, I mean, whatever. There were other people around. The cops got called. It was fine. I wasn't hurt. Everything was cool. You called the deer. He had to call the deer's family too. Right? I had to be like, look, dear friends, I have some bad news. Get it, dear friends? Oh, man. That was good. That, that was, was good. I'm going to write that one down. Uh, so, But it was the type of thing where I was like, the guy the guy who lived across the street from where it happened, he was like, you can just call the cops. I was like, can I borrow your cell phone because I don't have one? <laughs> and he had this real annoyed look on his face. And I was like, all right, I guess this is kind of annoying other people around me. And it wasn't the only time. So eventually I got one. And now you know as soon as i got it i'm like i think oh, it's I, great to not have one that's very good yeah no no i mean it's true and like I, I as soon as i got it i'm like oh yeah now i get why students don't put these down like you know i was sharing a flip <laughs> phone with diane for five years and then now i have you know yeah twitter facebook everything right at my fingertips always and well yeah, yeah my my thing is i have a dumb phone uh-huh. so i can't get on the internet which makes my students laugh so hard they fall out of their chairs <laughs> yeah. but uh, you know i take this flip phone out and i show them how i text i just use it for texting and sometimes uh. i wonder if i'm getting brain cancer from talking too much on it but i can't get on the internet which is yeah the way i really like it actually oh sure it's you know i, I think putting some of those limits on yourself is just you know the other day i wore usually i wear a shirt with a chest pocket and i'll just put the phone in there but the other day I had one without one, and I was like, I'm just going to put this in the cabinet for the day. And, of course, I kept reaching for it because it's a vestigial Yeah, lamp. yeah, yeah. But, it's definitely an addiction. I mean, there are all these studies that show that your brain generates these hits of dopamine when right. you, t- you get it. Yeah. And it's kind of it seems to be equivalent to taking a hit of crack. I mean, going to it. And I feel that with just looking at email all the time. Oh, sure. And, you know, the I always tell the students, like, look, here's a tip you can use to try to moderate it a little bit in your life. A lot of students have all the notifications turned on for everything. So every time somebody tweets at you, every oh, time somebody, God, yeah. notifi- you know, likes something on Facebook, whatever, whatever, it your phone beeps. And I told them, yeah. turn that off. Turn it off. Because... Yeah. 
if you're expecting to hear that thing beep every time somebody does something that you know rewards your ego then every second that goes by that doesn't result in a beep you're not you're getting negative data all the time yeah you, the yeah, message yeah, you're yeah. being sent is people don't give a what about you or anything you've posted or anything you're saying and yeah. that's a horror no wonder more and more students are dealing with depression and anxiety it's because they live in this carnival of like you know, you need to constantly have your ego stroked um and you know i think it leads to a you know with regard to political stuff i think it can easily lead to a sense of like you know your value as a political person is contingent upon how clever and smarmy and witty you can be yeah, on social right, media right. rather than contributing meaningfully to movements to you know make things better yeah and i think information overload is a big problem like i used to go to many more news sites and blogs and whatnot. And now I, there are a few I look at, but I don't try to read everything. And right. I get the kind of corporate mainstream news Monday through Friday from the New York Times, and I get some publications. So I don't read as online as much, but I also don't try to immerse myself in everything. And on the weekend, I don't really get that much exposure to news and you know, I was talking to my sister about it, and she said, well, you're not going to miss anything major because everybody, get, everything gets repeated yeah. over and over. So you're yeah. going to hear a Monday morning anyway. Yeah. And as, on Sunday, I, I try – sometimes I have to get online, but I try to have no internet Sundays, mm-hmm. and it's just better for my brain, oh, I sure. find. I, I, and I then admire you, that. you can sort of pick and choose and focus on things that you want to – be involved in that you're trying to make a difference um, with, you know, being some uh, in capa- some capacity an activist sure. instead of just, you know, just getting on, what is it, a, a daily cause or whatever yeah. that is. I mean, they send out like 20 emails a day and each yeah. one has 10 articles. It's right, insane. Right. And and I think that can easily, yeah, contribute to the sense of despair of like everything's wrong and there's so much to be done. None of it is bound to have any impact. I might as well not bother. Yeah, 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 yeah. yeah I mean, that's a real dangerous mindset to be in. Um. So in terms of East Timor, you know, we're still doing the, uh, you know, sister city thing. Although at times it's kind of perilous because it's hard for us to stay in touch with people and you know keep the relationship going. Um. But are there things in San Francisco that are, are happening? No. Not not right now, not yeah. now. Um, I just got kind of caught up in other things, oh, and sure. there wasn't a big group of people, and it kind of scattered after they got after the East Timorese got independence. So, yeah, sure. I mean, the, I'm mostly in touch with John Miller in New York, mm-hmm. and then Pam Sexton, who used to be um, in San Francisco and then moved to Watsonville, yeah. is you know, there in Timor. Right, right. So I think it's great you guys are doing. I mean, I think you're the most active ch- uh, group doing stuff outside of New York. Yeah, right it's now. weird because, you know, there's just four of us, and it feels at times like, you know, we're just kind of spinning our wheels. And, I mean, we're whatever. Like, we're, we're funding the clinic, and we're helping to, you know, yeah, like – provide micro grants and stuff like we're doing stuff there's no doubt about it but it's just i don't know it's weird thinking about it in relationship to back in the day of course when you know 
at least we had an urgent story to tell. And, you know, I remember after the vote thinking East Timor is probably going to become the Haiti of Southeast Asia. And that's pretty much what's happened, right? Like they're just floundering, trying to make their way as just another third world country where unemployment is through the roof and capitalism says you don't really matter to us. And therefore you can continue to live in your squalor. Yeah, it's funny you should mention that because I went from working on Timor Solidarity to Haiti Solidarity. Okay. Mostly after the 2003 coup that um, forced Aristide from power. And now I'm, for various reasons, I'm not really involved in that, but I have a lot of friends who are still in the group locally that are working on that. So, yeah, Haiti is just endless, unfortunately. Yeah, no doubt. And it's, you know, I think it it sort of, I don't know. I remember. Look, when I tell the student, I tell I tell my students the story of East Timor, which I will be doing soon because it's almost May twentieth. Um, I always tell them that you know it's a story of bloodshed and desperation, genocide, starvation, rape, murder, bloodshed, but it's also a story of hope and the power of nonviolent direct action to you know bring about a change in U.S. government policy, which was a part of world mm-hmm. consciousness shifting, but. Then it's like, you know, I want them to understand that battles can be won, but I also want them to understand that then there's this whole other battle of transforming capitalism, (laughs) which is so much harder to talk about, especially because as soon as I start mentioning it to them, a lot of their eyes glaze over and they're like, first of all, why are we talking about this in a writing class? Second of all, we know communism (laughs) doesn't work. So like, dude, and I'm just like, oh, God, it's it's tough. I don't know. Yeah, yeah, I don't have a soundbite answer to that one. <laughs> hey, <laughs> give me a solution, damn it. Um, so we're coming up on about an hour here. Are there other things that are on your mind lately? Are there uh, things going on in your classes that you think are interesting? Or, um, God, good question. I want to see the new Laura Poitras movie. I, I didn't know. know she had a new movie. Uh, What's it about? Yeah, it's about Julian Assange, actually. Okay. So for those who don't know, she made Citizen Four, which is about Snowden? Yeah, which is one of my favorite documentaries of all time. That's great. Um, I can tell you about movies I want to see that I haven't seen yet. I yeah, want to see the new John Coltrane documentary, too. Right, I haven't seen where's that. there a John Coltrane documentary? It's called. I think it's called Chasing the Train. Okay. When did it come just out? just came out. Oh, wow. Rock on. I still haven't seen the James Baldwin one. It came and went. Oh, here. that's great. Yeah. yeah and I, I remember I it was playing at the same film. time as Moonlight, and it was like uh, other people were like, Moonlight, and we were we went to see it. And then I was like, ah, James Baldwin is gone. So. Yeah, yeah, it didn't play for long enough. There's a James Baldwin documentary, which we uh, got out of the San Francisco Public Library on DVD and watch, which you should look for. Hmm. It might be on YouTube. It was a PBS documentary. Okay. I mean, it still is because yeah. it still exists. It's called James Baldwin, The Price of the Ticket. Okay. And it was made around 1990 or so. So at that point, um, many people who were part of his story and part of his life were still alive. Mm. It was made after he died, but it also incorporates a lot of footage of interview footage with him. Okay. That's that's an amazing movie. Yeah, James yeah. Baldwin, The Price of the Ticket. That's one of the better documentaries I've seen cool. this I'll year. Check it out. The Nina Simone documentary on Netflix was surprisingly good. I, I really liked it. Yeah, that, that was really good. Yeah. yeah. Very powerful stuff there. And yeah, it seems like I don't know, I always tell my students like 
documentary movies are so underappreciated because you think about a bookstore or a library, half the stuff in there is nonfiction. But when we think about movies, document. I mean, it's changing, I guess, recently. But, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. You know, documentaries have often taken a back seat, and it's been yeah, yeah. You know, Michael Moore and Supersize Me as the major contenders, but I think we're seeing a renaissance of it, which is cool. Yeah, I, I definitely agree with that. I agree with that. Oh, uh, yeah, before I go, I, is this book I read a year and a half ago, maybe, that's... Oh, I wrote about it in the new issue of my zine called um, The Devil's Chessboard. Yeah, this is about the Dulles Brothers, right? Yeah, it's about it's about the Dulles Brothers. Largely, mostly about Alan Dulles, who is one of the original... CIA people who is I think the first director Um, but the kind of director of the CIA for decades and I was always an agnostic on the JFK assassination (laughs) partly because there's there are too many crazy theories and too many people go crazy disappearing (laughs) into the JFK assassination rabbit hole but David Talbot the guy who wrote this book is a very careful methodical thorough journalist and a very engaging, lively writer. Mm-hmm. So it's both a great read and also kind of uh, uh, packed with this kind of stunning documentation of what Alan Dulles did, and, and not just in terms of JFK, and I w- wound up coming away pretty convinced that he was tied into the assassination of JFK, but on you know all over the world and the re- recruitment of Nazis immediately after World War II and their support from the Nazi party in the 30s. And so it's great American history. I just feel like the more people read, um, especially 20th century American history, you can kind of understand what's going na- on now. And then, you know, as you were saying, books from all over the world that talk about how people survive really scary times because i think we're in a really scary time now. yeah definitely and and i think you know books that will remind people of the sense of struggle that exists everywhere you know saw uh, studs turkle did a book called hope dies last and that was really cool to see all these older folks continuing to fight in, and resisting the stereotype of oh, once you're 35, you'll have a mortgage and you'll be conservative. And if you don't, then you don't have a brain. And, you know, it's just this notion that, yeah, you're bound to become, you know, this this progressive urge that exists in a lot of young people. Well, it withers over time and you eventually learn mm-hmm. that you were mm-hmm. naive and you saw the world one way and blah, blah, blah. And eh, it's a bunch of hokum. Yeah, Sud Circle's a great kind of role model and inspiration for yeah. me just as somebody who, to the day he died, he remained really passionate and engaged with the world and really committed to social justice. But also, you know, found inspiration from the arts and from all different aspects of culture. And yeah, he's just an incredible guy. I hadn't read that one, but I really liked, you know, like working and the book about the 30s and oh the one about world war ii yeah i was gonna say the good war is so fascinating because it's all these different perspectives of like cooks on naval subs and yeah Yeah. people who were like you know what we did some messed up things i don't remember if you had anybody from dresden there but um but anyway i was thinking about grace lee boggs too i don't know if you saw the documentary about her but um she was a really cool Uh -uh. i think it's called american revolutionary 
and it's just a is really it a documentary cool, or a book? Yeah, it's a documentary. Yeah, and it's like oh, it's just, no. again like that same spirit of it's funny because it starts out she's using a walker going down the street the sidewalk in Detroit in front of this enormous abandoned car factory, and she says, mm-hmm. "I really feel sorry for people who don't live in Detroit right now because we're doing some amazing <laughs> transformational things and they don't get to see it." And I was just like, wow, what a way to start a movie, right? Like, I don't think anybody would agree with that, but she's got that fire, you know? It's just cool to see all the people who came to see her and the organizations that she was supporting. Again, like literally till the day she died, so. Is that is that streaming? Did you get it from some streaming? I, well, I know we saw it at the Wisconsin Film Festival one year, so oh. it may be online somewhere. I'm sure you know Amazon has a lot of stuff for rent, but I don't, I don't really know the details. But I will put. Yeah, the, Amazon's uh, a good company. I like yeah, that exactly. Um, Just kidding. <laughs> the other thing that I wanted to talk to you about real quick is Nelson Algren, because in one of your zines you had a tribute to him, and I remember falling in love with him when I got a copy of Nonconformity, which was on the shelf at a bookstore that I worked at in a mall in Sarasota, Florida. And I kept looking (laughs) at it as I'd pass by and I'd be like, that name intrigues me, but I I don't know. And then when it was closing up, I closed the store. And uh, on my last day, I was like, I'm taking this book. And so I actually paid for it. And um, but anyway, it's just such a powerful book. And so tell me uh, why you think Nelson Algren's an important guy. Well, yeah, actually, my buddy, Dimitri Samaroff, who does uh, art for my scene, wrote that piece, uh, and uh, I reprinted it in the zine. And um, because I love Nelson Algren, and it's a nice tribute to him. Yeah. But um, I may have found out about him from Studs Terkel. When you're talking about Studs Terkel, I was just thinking about Algren, and yeah, yeah. he, you know, he's this Chicago guy who um, was kind of a voracious reader as a kid and always was passionate about writing and he started writing fiction maybe around the same time as Hemingway maybe a little later but he wound up in he never wanted to move to New York where all these sort of bright lights of literary world and people who were getting a lot of press for their writing would wind up he was kind of a dyed-in-the-wool Chicago guy, and he stayed there and wrote about people who um, might be characterized as kind of low-life, but working-class, gamblers, cab drivers, uh, ladies of the evening, thieves, people who are really up against it. And, um, yeah, his his books are just so powerful. You know, they kind of, as Dimitri said in his piece, they kind of trail off towards the end of his life, yeah. probably because he was a really bad drinker and he never quit. So in, in became and he never more and, more and he bitter. never got over ah uh, um, uh, the French one. Um, oh, Simone de Simone de Beauvoir. Beauvoir. Yeah, they had a thing. Yeah, and yeah. She was like, yeah. "Well, I kind of like you, but you know, me and Sartre like we're a thing." So he was like, "God damn it!" So I think that really messed him up too. Yeah, yeah. He never kind of let that one go but yeah, yeah he's a, i'd recommend uh somebody in boots or walk on the wild side walk on the wild side's amazing. the man with a golden arm man yeah. with a golden arm was made into a movie which he also became very bitter about because yeah. they completely he gave it a happy ending right, and right. frank sinatra was kind of this charismatic leading man yeah, which exactly. is not the way the 
protagonist. As, as Mayhew says in Barton Fink, if your opinion mattered, Fink, I guess I'd resign and let you run the studio. Well, I won't, and the yeah. inmates are not going to run this particular asylum, so let's put a stop to that rumor right now. Yeah, it's like one of the better movies about Hollywood oh, ever made. Love Barton Fink. I actually show it to my creative writing students, and they're just like, what is that? You know, the, the <laughs> credits roll, and they're just like, you're joking! That's not the end! What the hell, Mr. P? And I'm like, nah. So, yeah. Um, all right, man. Well, I think it's a good place for us to pause it here, but let me ask you this. Uh, as the tradition has become in these interviews, I want you to pick the song that we exit on. Oh. Can you can you play uh, a song that has the F word in it? I can. I will do some editing on the fly. Well, you have to edit a lot. That's There's okay. I can band do. I really love, Bad, Bad Religion, has yes. a song called Fuck You. I really like that one. Okay. I will end with that. And Diane is here. Hey, Ben. Hey, what's going on? Hey, he says, what's going on? Home from work. She just got home from work. Hey, congratulations. Congratulations, he said. And I should tell the listeners, Ben is also very proud of me because I rode my bike recently. Yay. No, yeah, I really, I was really pleased with you. I mean, yeah, I, I was I thought I was glowed with pride. Listeners, I thought I was texting Diane and I accidentally texted Ben, hey, I'm riding bikes. And I put the XO thing. And was just, ben is like, what is this? Leave me alone. I don't care about you riding your goddamn bike. No, I warmed the cockles of my heart. I guess. There you go. All right, man. It's been great talking to you, Ben. Stay in touch. Have a great uh, rest of the week. Okay. Well, yeah, just send the check anytime this week. That'd I will do that. 73 cents, okay. right? Yeah, yeah, 73, 74. Yeah, I'll take that. No, we agreed to 73. You're not going to talk me up to 74. Okay, yeah, 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 I'm yeah, not yeah. made out of 74 cents. Yeah, Thank and people, if, if people want to get my zine, there's no website. That's right. So I forgot all me. about this part of it. I'm such an idiot. Okay, how can they get in touch no, with you? That's right. You can email me. I can give you more information, or I can send you a you know, I'll give you a PDF if you want an example of what it looks like. It's B-T-E-R-R-A-L-L at gmail.com. All right. Thank you, everybody, for listening. And thank you, Ben. And have a great rest of the week. Cool. Yeah, you too. Everybody needs to serve it in the final on dough. Never had to have a strategy or kick on dough. Sometimes I have no sense at all. As most flawed men I want to do. Takes some thought and all The easiest thing to 
Dragon Simcast is a production of the floating brain of Eric S. Piotrowski, which is solely responsible for its content. This program is a joint venture of Ribonucleic Records and Garrison Multimedia. Our show is made possible by a grant from the Fargus Foundation. Some restrictions may apply. See SOAR for details. Fight the power. So powerful. Hey, can you hang on three and a half seconds? I just want to get my hoodie. I'll hang on for three seconds. I'm not going to hang on for three and a half. Okay, it'll be three. Yeah, three very long seconds. Okay. Whoa. Two, two and a half, two and three quarters. Three. See? Ah, not bad.